so it's such an honour to be here with Shura. Um, Rux Media Collective is someone that have inspired my practice um, from day one and I think many other curators and artists and activists and, and thinkers across the world. Um, so we're going we're gonna to dive into your practice and, sure. and what that means. Um, but first, I just wanted to give a little bit of context about why I'm sitting here with you mm. and, and what our relationship is as well and, and perhaps also to should I, your relationship to Brisbane and Australia right. in terms of showing here before. And, and I first came across Rux Media Collective's work um, in 2012 when I was part of um, an initiative called the Guanju Biennale um, Independent Curators Course. Um, and there I met a colleague called Srinivasaditya Mopadibi and he worked with Shudder. And, and during that process of sharing and other curators together, we were able to uncover um, Rux Media Collective's practice. And then following on from that, I saw the same practice here in Brisbane with the Asia Pacific Trinale. Um, I think it was APT7 where you were showing work here yeah. in Brisbane. Um, following on from that, um, in 2015, you presented two iterations of new work here in Brisbane at the IMA, so which was fantastic. So we had um, Memorophilia and the Time Symposium, which was amazing events that happened here in Brisbane um, under the directorship of Aileen Burns and Yohan Lund um, as part of the series called What Can Art Institutions Do? So that was your contribution here as well. Um, and following on from that, um, the relationship continues and I was very privileged to work with you on the 11th Shanghai Biennial Project. Um, and in, in doing so, I also want to acknowledge the funding that enabled me to um, travel and be part of that. So. I was able to take part of that through um, a Brisbane City Council initiative called the Lord Mayor's Artist Fellowship, um, which mm -hmm. I feel a little bit like a fraud because I'm not an artist, um, but I'm very grateful for being acknowledged and funded for that. Um, and then also um, there was also Australia Council um, Professional Development Grant, which enabled me to um, stay in India for a year mm. and to work with you guys, which was amazing. Um, so that's the full context. Um, so just so everyone is aware, but I guess I'm really interested about, I mean, Rux Media Collective is someone that have operated for 25 years, right? Um, 27 now. 27, okay. Um, and through a different plurality of roles. So, I mean, do you want to kind of speak to the audience in, in terms of how do you define yourselves um, and, and all the different practices that you employ? Thank you, Tess, for that wonderful introduction and placing our relationship in a, in a valuable context, which I think is um, exactly the kind of contact and conversation that should be happening between artists, between artists and curators, between curators who are at different moments in their practice. Um, and I'd like to thank the Australia Council both for giving us the gift of your presence for a year oh. and also for inviting me and being um, letting me be here. Thank you, Joanna and everyone else for being such wonderful interlocutors and, and, and partners in, in my discovery or rediscovery of the contemporary uh, art scene in Australia. Uh, I've had uh, the, the opportunity and the pleasure of, of visiting your continent um, in different times and under different um, circumstances. So the first time I came to Brisbane was actually in 2001. Um, they, there was, and I think there still is, an organization called the Australian Network for Art and Technology, ANAT. It's here, yeah, and they had done a wonderful 
um, kind of month-long workshop process here in a, in a former industrial facility, which brought together really amazing people. I mean, it was, for instance, the artist Shilpa Gupta, whom some of you may know was there. I was there. Uh, Graham Harwood, um, an artist that we worked with several times, including in the Shanghai Biennale, and um, was there. And the reason I, I, I'm reminded of that was because um, in the early 21st century, there was a moment when the thinking between experimental work in technology, software, coding, culture, reclaiming the histories, and a uh, form of being witness to the time and art practice was very alive and mm. perhaps uh, it seemed to me to be the best kept secret of Australia. It had philosophical intensity and it had a sharpness. Some of that seemed to have muted itself over the years. But it, it's a great pleasure for me to, to now see the, uh, what seems to me a certain crackling, lively crystallization of many of those energies of what it means to be thoughtful, what it means to be precise, what it means to be, um, to be aware of the world that we're living in. And it's been a real pleasure for me going through this kind of blitzkrieg of studio visits and conversations um, in Sydney and Adelaide and, and tomorrow in Brisbane to, to have once again a sense of engagement, rediscovery, and I'm sure that I'll learn a lot from it. Um, you asked me about to sort of put some context to the nature of our practice, which is never an easy thing to do, given that it's 27 years uh, and that it has gone through an entire topography of, of life and practice and so on. Uh, we came together in a film school in Delhi, the three of us, me, Jibesh, and Monica, you can see us here all looking nice and younger. <laughs> um, we, we met as students in film school, and uh, I mean, I thought that I was going to become a documentary filmmaker. Uh, the fact that I now practice in contemporary arts and visual arts as an artist as a, and as a curator was very far from my own understanding of what my future would be. Uh, and through the... Um, 90s through the 80s and 90s of the last century, uh, we worked in various different kinds of fields in educational television, which is oh, something that I have that a soft spot for. Um, and also I discovered that an artist that I greatly admired, the filmmaker Harun Faroqi, spent a lot of his time doing science films for children. Um, that's how we used to make a living. And then gradually began uh, making small documentaries, essay films, which began being shown in contemporary art contexts to our surprise. It was never, um, I mean, we had no idea why people were beginning to want to show some of these. In fact, in w one of the things that we, that we were invited to show at one of the APTs is from that time. So nice. 
they they come back once in a while. There was a film that we'd made about a filmmaker for television, and they were showing the work of the filmmaker here. Ruben Kian was, yes, was programming a wonderful um, selection of the works of Kumar Shahani, and that's how one of our little films was sort of brought back again from the vault and and given a life. By the early 2000s, something else had begun happening. We'd produced, uh, or were beginning to produce a body of work that could find its way into contemporary art venues. And to our surprise and delight, um, they they seemed to find a public and an acceptance and and in the possibilities of interlocution that have since then been a reason to continue to be artists. Uh, our move into curation was also a series of accidents. Mm. I know we will talk a little bit about an institution that we, that an initiative that we fa- co-founded called Sarai, which was like a interdisciplinary platform for research and practice between different kinds of people who could be artists, who could be people working with open source software, who could be philosophers, who could be historians, who could be graphic novelists. And for 12 years, Jibesh Monik and I were very engaged in the day-to-day business of making this beast live. Mm. Uh, And willy-nilly, we realized later that a lot of what we were doing by making it alive and keeping it alive was in a sense a kind of practice of everyday curation. It it becomes the foundation of the way we think curatorially, although again, when we were doing it, we didn't understand that this was curation. Right. Uh, we had no name for it. We had no words for it. Other things happened. We, we were invited to uh, curate um, one arm of the European contemporary uh, Art Biennale Manifesta, and then Shanghai, with which um, you worked with us, and now it's um, it's the Yokohama Triennial. With other things in between, we just finished last year a show at uh, Macba in uh, Barcelona, which is again a kind of group show, positing a new set of futures for contemporary art. So lots of things have happened on the way. We've worked meanwhile with architects, with theater producers, with writers, with graphic novelists, with software programmers, in the spirit of the extension of the conversation that we have amongst ourselves. And Rux, the people have often asked me, how is it that we continue over these 27 years? What is the secret, if you like? There is no secret other than the fact that we argue and fight and disagree with each other every day. You've been witness to the, <laughs> the intensity of those disagreements. And, maybe, uh, and, and it's, but that's the engine that keeps things going in a way. So I don't know if I've done justice to some Absolutely. of your question. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting because I, I think at least I feel in, in Australia there is a hesitation towards an argument. Mm. There's a hesitation towards a confrontation um, and there's almost this sort of politeness that emerges. So 
for me particularly when I did come to your studio and, and found that head-on confrontation was actually very refreshing from an outsider's perspective. Mm. And I mean, to me, there's no surprise that that's what has been the engines driving you because, um, you know, it's it's been the advocation for how each of you bring forth your own individual voices within a context. Mm. And and of course, you are Rux Media Collective, but you're also Shuda and Monica and Jabish, you know, mm. and you do really um, bring that together. And I think, um, and you know, why this conversation is so much more richer here in Brisbane is because there is such a strong history of artist-run initiatives here and I think there's a strong initiative of artists working together so I'm very interested to um, sort of bleed these edges together mm. as well. So that's why I did ask a little bit more about Sarai. Um, so for those who aren't completely aware of the context and in its founding and, and what it stands for mm. and some of the projects that it did um, happen across the 12 years, could you sort of speak more to to that history and sort mm. of um, help blow those edges out for us? Well, um, thank you for that question because I think it gives me an opportunity to revisit the modes which made um, our practice and the practice of several others possible. Which is to say that, let's say that in the in the late 90s, um, in, in a place like Delhi, in India, there were very few possibilities for evolving an independent practice in the arts, in, um, in journalism, in media, in thinking critically about cities or technology. Mm. These were all areas that we were interested in at that time. And our gamble, if you like, our wager was to say that if we invoke the possibility of a future public, then it might appear. And it was a big risk. We had nothing to fall back on. If somebody asked us this question, so how many people will respond to what you're thinking and doing? To be honest, I would say I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right? Over the years that we were closely associated with Sarai, we counted one day close to 27,500 people actually passed wow. through Sarai in one form or the other. We produced 645 independent research and practice fellowships, which constituted the foundations of most of the current generation of independent artists and practitioners from India. Mm. I mean, the names that anyone would, if you were to put together a roster of who are the interesting, exciting artists uh, who are kind of early mid-career right now, yeah. I would with some confidence say that they all had something to do with Sarai mm -hmm. because we were able to produce a system of fellowships that gave a young practitioner a year's time to consolidate their thinking, their research, make it public, produce an iteration of it. And we raised funds to do all of this through a variety of international um, sort of funding applications and programs. But what it did then was that it created the milieu and the public and the organic relationship that a new cultural practice has to have with its, with its wider constituencies, such that I think, and I am not, I'm, I'm just being honest, uh, and when I say that, that it changed our city, which is, you know, 26 million people. Mm. So the way we think now about the city, the way 
everything from the discussion of civic issues to public transport to education to the place of culture to the ferment and the turbulence within universities to the new possibilities of artists doing things and i and i have watched it rise and fall and rise again and i'm both pessimistic as well as optimistic about it but i can sense that if you don't actually have that audacity to to try and test the the limits of what the presence of artists can do in a city you can't really get anywhere mm. and there is a great advantage to starting from degree zero because you you cannot fail because there's nothing to fail from yeah. right so assuming we started sarai and didn't it, it or did or could not start sarai assuming that nothing went forward we would not have actually gone backwards we would have just tried and failed it so happened that we went forward mm. so i am always interested in when when i'm communicating with artists elsewhere in asking what things they're doing mm. without awareness of the possibility of success or failure nice because it's it's when they are free of having to know that they might do something which is really successful mm. that often the most interesting things come up yeah absolutely and i feel like that's um a nice way to pivot off that is this conversation of funding and obviously um you know what you're speaking about is that sarai emerged out of a context where there wasn't a sarai before mm. and there wasn't fellowships before right and you you self-funded to make that happen mm. so well raised the funding didn't raise fund. fun no no so, yes used your yeah. skills to um yeah. obscure other um yeah. funding to come yeah. in um mm. but yeah i'm interested in like this idea of freedom and and what comes out like what scope of that was possible w within the fellowships in terms of what did you see come out of those fellowship mm. programs can you think of any um case studies that really emerge out of those mm, sure um i think distinct genres came out of it mm. everything that we know of as performance act in india today came out of the sarai fellowships mm -hmm. it came out of because nobody had done performance art before so and some of the people who were doing it didn't even know that they were doing performance art we had a a gentleman who worked as a clerk in a bank by day uh who is now one of india's foremost performance artists he worked in a little obscure bank branch his name is inder salim he's well known in the world now but he did he he said he's he wants to you know when he's not working in the bank he wants to he wants to produce a new way of being was his words right so we said okay that's good enough a lot of people who did work with sound art mm. um which didn't have traction before started happening uh artists whom you might know of like rohini devasher or pallavi paul who are um who sh must uh, come to australia because they're both engaged in thinking about big skies and the earth mm -hmm. um who were interested in the intersections of science and art and serious astrophysical research or forensic investigations they produced their work within the sarai context mm. as fellows um 
the entire genre of the graphic novel in India, which again has gone places in the artists like Sarnath Banerjee, for yeah. instance, uh, came out of Sarai Fellowships. Long-form journalism of a new kind emerged out of it. Different forms of reflection on the histories of political activism emerged from it. People who worked on questions that were as difficult as the fate of political prisoners to the question of capital punishment, to the earliest iterations of the cultural expressions of the of the queer communities in Delhi uh, emerged out of Sarai. These are all relatively, these are all now flourishing in relative spaces of comfort. Mm. But in 2001, that was not the case. Yeah. In 2002, that was not the case. So to we, our concern was to be able to find a mode for people to say new things without being threatened and also without feeling too special. Right. Right? That <laughs> was just normal. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, uh, I mean, this idea of what you spoke about before in terms of programming and not really realizing that was a curatorial mm -hmm. act in a way. Can you speak towards, like, in your opinion, how do you think those early days have fed into your um, realization in terms of Rux Media Collective now approaching um, major international curatorial mm, projects? Mm, How, you know, is there a translation there from that early days to now? I think there certainly is. First of all, there is um, an awareness of the significance of a conversational mode. Mm -hmm. So even when in Shanghai, for instance, you were part of the collegium that we constructed, we were very clear that a curatorial intelligence needs to produce its, uh, produce a sort of fractal universe of its own, that there needs to be a kind of give and take of ideas and conversations between and across methods, between and across even generations, and that it is um, having drawn our strengths from a collective practice, we knew that the idea of individual genius was not our strength. Yeah. We were individuals, but not geniuses. And that was actually the starting point for saying that what we need is to create a climate of interlocution, of conversation. So that was one. Mm -hmm. So fr Sarai, from its very inception, had, its, had an emphasis on the conversations between people who would otherwise not be talking to each other. Yeah. That was it, one of its core beliefs. I think that translated into our curatorial practice mm. and method. The other thing was to be surprised by the things that people do and to open themselves to their surprises, to encourage people who are not necessarily recognized as artists to recognize the aesthetic strength of their practices. Mm. So whenever we've curated, we've invited people who might see themselves as librarians, as yeah. doctors, as, as um, physicists, as as writers to consider for a moment what it means for them to pretend to be artists. And at the same time to work, of course, with artists. Mm -hmm. But if you bring in a librarian into a conversation with contemporary artists and say, we have to work towards the, towards the building of a biennial, something interesting begins to happen, right? So. Uh, I remember that when we did Manifesto, we worked, we in the, the person, one of the people we invited was 
a librarian in, in obsessed with creating taxonomies for free software records. Wow. And I think they produced something really beautiful. We, we invited a conservation architect, um, Pedro Otero Palos, who is uh, now a very well-known artist. He's showing in Venice and whatever it is. But his basic practice was the cleaning of buildings. He would attach latex films onto walls and clean the dust off the buildings. And we felt that that, that practice of of taking the dust off the wall was actually making an impression of time. Mm. And they could be seen as objects in their own right. And when we asked him, when we invited him to be a part of the biennial, he, his initial response was, but you know, I'm not an artist. And then we said, well, that's what we said when we were invited for the first time, right? right? <laughs> so, and Sarai had that spirit of, of inviting people or opening doors for people to reconsider their own practice in, in the light of aesthetics, in the light of what it means to pursue aesthetic as an ethic in the world. Um, and finally, the question of um, building a, a body of work that, that tries to present itself not necessarily as information, and I'm not particularly convinced always of the of the pedagogic role ascribed to contemporary art yeah. but as an engine for thoughtfulness mm -hmm. as an engine for the asking of questions as is a way of moving forward with with unexamined realities these are three things that came directly to me from the Sarai experience collaborative energies mm -hmm. the invitation to new practices and an emphasis on thoughtfulness I feel I'm very interested now in, in, in rolling off this is thinking about what can curatorial practice be, right? Because you're, you're advocating that, um, you know, collaboration is at the heart of what you both do as a practice and as an artist, as an art collective, but also how you approach curation yeah. and, and considering what can an artist be or opening up that possibility for people as well. So there is um, a lot of conversation, I feel like, in the curatorial field about what constitutes curatorial practice. Mm. And it's something that I still struggle with a lot because even in my practice, people are always saying, you know, Tess, when are you curating an exhibition next, right? Mm. And I feel like, of course, sure, exhibitions are great. That's fantastic. But I also am a big advocate for public programs, a big advocate for publishing and actually seeing these things mm. as a curatorial practice and Absolutely, also acknowledging yeah. curatorial practice as a practice that should have self-discovery mm. in the same way that an artistic practice should. Absolutely. I mean, I, I cannot disagree with you on that. And I, and I think it's also a realisation that uh, we might have contributed a little to in your <laughs> making of. Right? Absolutely. Because of the fact that uh, we have had an investment in the idea that all that a lot of good things take time, and there is a certain um, an economy of of short term temporal outputs that the contemporary art world is is prone to, which is I think counterproductive. Yes, we need the blockbuster shows. We need the shows that need to go up and come down. We need intensities and we need occupations of time that are intense. But they cannot be of value unless they're, they stand 
in tandem with processes that are long-term, mm -hmm. processes that are gestatory, processes that, that, um, that are latent even, and don't necessarily always manifest themselves. And it is a task for those of us who are involved with curation to stand up and say with some confidence that this too is a curatorial sensibility. Mm. The question of what we do every day, the question of the notes that we take uh, as we gather thoughts and materials and impressions is also the basis of curatorial thinking. So I've never been sympathetic to the idea that the curator is a person who moves from place to place and sort of checks boxes by looking at artists and their work and says, yes, I've got my list. I'm much more sympathetic to the idea that curation is what happens on the basis of really slow procedures, mm. which then make room for these encounters to be fruitful when they occur. So when I'm meeting an artist, I'm interested in having not interested in knowing what they can tell me. Mm. Because if I have an apparatus of curatorial assistance, for instance, <laughs> you are a very capable curatorial associate, you, you would produce those dossiers for me. Mm -hmm. So I don't need the artists to, yeah. to do that, you know, the pitch in a sense. What I'm interested in as a curator is to, is to step into the conversation that they're having with themselves. Mm and see where I can position myself along with that. Now, institutions such as the IMA or other places that you're lucky to have in Australia, because they occupy, you know, they do things every day and all the time. Yeah. They're not just producing, um, you know, the seasonal extravaganza. There's a certain dailiness to the work. I mean, I just came from... Um, the um, space called ACE in Adelaide, yes. right? Where yes, where you come were. from. Now, there's an, uh, there's an exhibition there of an artist, Elias Alavi, and what impressed me was not just the quality of the work, but also the fact that there was an element of daily making, of periodic, episodic making, the construction of little spaces of homeliness and belonging that he was doing with people in the community, that is actually may not be seen as part of how the show manifests itself. Mm. But curatorially, that for me is a very important move because it thickens the occupation that that artist in that show makes of time in that particular space and building. So these processes are... Uh, vital. I mean, to curate is as much to preserve as it is to poison. Right. Uh, because, you know, I mean, there's this old debate about the etymology of the word, whether curare, the, the, uh, the poisonous uh, herb, which was used in South America a lot, uh, is also somewhere a shadow on curare, the Latin verb from which we get curating. Um, and we have argued um, in, in a text that we've written called um, Towards a Slow Motion Biennial, or mm. we've argued for biennials at the outer edges of the solar system. <laughs> I mean, these are speculative possibilities. They will, we will never in our lifetime be in a biennial at the outer edges of the solar system. But it is only to disturb the... Um, the territorial conceit mm. or the temporal conceit of a 
of an exhibition saying this is about here now this contemporary art will if it is of any value it has to be relevant 5000 years in the future we have to understand that just as we look at art from 5000 years ago and it keeps us alive right now mm. the work that we're doing all of us yeah. should have something to say in the remote future we need to curate for those possibilities yeah amazing i love that <laughs> thank you that's fantastic um Maybe to go now to speak about, I mean, these wonderful um, ideas about what curation can be, maybe to anchor that now in, in, in your curatorial practice in something more recently. Um, for the people here today, could, could you speak a little bit towards um, the specifics of the Shanghai Biennial? Sure. And I have a few images here yeah. as well. Well, the invitation to do the Shanghai Biennial was a great challenge because... Uh, of course, we were very excited to work in a society like China, um, where there's so much energy. You can s you can sense that um, there was a certain commitment to the idea of thinking about the future of forms, the future of of forms of living as well as of practice. And um, between Monica and me, at least, we had an. Uh, overwhelming and growing interest in Chinese science fiction mm. uh, when we were beginning to think about the Shanghai Biennial. And uh, we were early readers of Qi Xin Liu's three-body problem before it became the great sensation it has now become. Mm. And that book was an in important starting point for us because the Rux Media Collective is a three-body problem. Yeah. I mean, the, the three-body problem in physics is if you have two bodies in space, the relationships between them in terms of their gravities and their electromagnetic forces are simple to compute because they're just two of them. The moment you introduce a third body, um, things begin to get complicated uh, because the intersection of three gravitational fields affects and, and queers the pitch for everyone in ways that are unpredictable. So we thought that this was an interesting way to think about the possibilities of how do we make and, and benefit from our presence in China. Okay. For one, to see the relationship between the present in, in all its dizzying contemporaneity and also the deep times of futures and pasts. Mm -hmm. The Three-Body Problem as a book has, a, has an engagement with the question of deep time and deep space. So to think about a Biennale as a, as a, as a machine or as a device to both um, note the passage of now, but also in some ways to apprehend what might be. And I think that's a persistent question in our work. I mean, there is mm. another exhibition that we'll talk about a little later, which also has the sense of, of what is imminent, what is, what is in the futurity of the present itself. Um, so we found ourselves thinking not with themes, but with sources. Mm -hmm. So this science fiction trilogy became a source. A Bengali film from the 1970s, which translates as... Um, um, reasons, arguments, and stories, Jukti mm. Tokko or Goppo, 
which sort of looks at a moment in in the history of a of an ultra leftist rebellion in Bengal and in, and an intellectual's attempt to come to terms with it and failure uh, was another source. Um, in and in some ways, the the entire question of how do we calibrate this relationship between the urgency of the present and the time of the future became our way of thinking about the Chinese, um, of the Chinese opportunity, as we called it. Mm. So um, our effort was to create um, a set of questions, to, to have a biennial, and as you remember, the, the dramaturgy of the biennial was produced through acts that were presented as questions. And we invited all the artists that we knew and we were inviting to contribute questions to the biennial. And these became a, 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 a sort of scaffolding with which you could read through much of the biennial. Mm. We, we thought about, and, and because we are artists, we thought a lot about the sensory um, character mm. of the experience itself. So what would it mean for you to travel from the, from the lower ground levels to the, to the outer to the upper floors. What would it mean to be in the chimney? Because the um, the venue that we had was a former electrical power station. It had a 80 meter long chimney, which had to be dealt with. Um, so there were there were various practical questions of how do we curate sensation, how do we curate for questions, and how do we curate for um, for the opening up of different sensibilities. Uh, we've never been sympathetic to the idea that you can curate by ticking the boxes of a nationality. That's not our interest. Yeah. Um, what we have been always interested in is to see how artists living and working in very different places tell us a pic tell us some tell us a story about the world. So if someone is if there's an artist working in Western China, they are at the center of the world as far as we can see. Similarly, an artist working in New Zealand or in East Africa or in Dubai are, I mean, that's the advantage of living on a spherical planet. You don't have to commit yourself to one particular center. Each location produces an image and a sense of the world. And it was the gathering of these worlds and the picture that you can make when, when you put these worlds together that we were interested in. And I think those were the main engines, I mean, you can probably tell me more about what we were doing. Oh, well. <laughs> well, I definitely agree with what you said, Shura. Um, but I'm interested in what you just said about this idea of the sensory experience and coming from that position of, as an artist yeah. into curation. I think that's something that's very interesting. And and one thing that was particularly rich, in my opinion, of the Shanghai Biennial and, and definitely for other biennales around the world is these rich um, collaborations that do occur with architects. Mm. And when that when that can become a meaningful um, form of exchange as well. Mm. And I know that, you know, Rux Media Collective have worked a lot with Rupali and Prasad. That's right. Um, who are Mumbai-based um, architects and theorists and thinkers. And artists now. And artists now. And curators now. They've oh, become curators okay, as well. okay, there you go. Yeah. Um, so, like, I'd love to hear you speak to that yeah. as well and that, that side of exhibition making and exhibition design as well. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean... You're very right in the sense that our the starting point for us is is that space is a sensation. Mm. The 
the way you see light in an, in an exhibition is a sensation. And these are physical stimuli. The light is, um, you know, photons hitting your retina and then being processed. And just as this, the lady here said that, you know, she can't see my face because of the light, that, <laughs> that creates a particular way in which we, we, are, we encounter the space and this encounter. So my response to her was, think of this as a radio program, right? So then, then the, the presence and absence of light in the room becomes a curatorial question as to how do we position what's going on, right? Instead of making that a, a zone of discomfort, can we turn it around and make it something else, right? So when we work with architects, it's often this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. We're saying the, the exhibition architect is not just creating the carapace or the scaffolding for the positioning and hanging of works, mm -hmm. but is creating folds in space which must be seen as part of the aesthetic experience. As, so in that sense, they're not the, en the civil engineers who, who create the structures on which the buildings on which the works will hang, but they're artists. So every invitation that we make to an architect is to them as an architect, of course, but also to them as artists. Mm. And in uh, Shanghai Biennale, we were very conscious of the idea of uh, working within this giant hollow space in terms of looking for and desiring folds. Mm. So when we began working with Prasad and Rupali, one of the th exercises that we started by doing was origami, mm. was to say, can we create paper folds that, that thicken or thin our understanding of space, uh, which then became a design principle. Our working with the designer for the catalog, for instance, uh, Ariane Spania, the first pr publications, the first public material that went out of the Shanghai Biennale was in fact an origami piece which had to be unfolded and then refolded by the press to be able to make sense of the press statement mm. uh, and it was a structure it was a piece of paper sculpture rather than just a sheet of paper so it, we we looked at a lot of building spaces in shanghai they have an interest in urban forms informal public architecture mm. they've been teaching shanghai's architecture and urban form to students for yonks They've had an, you know, have an engagement with, with uh, Shanghai. And it was also interesting for us to, to propose to the Shanghainese that their city is actually not just their city. You know, I mean, mm. A world city like Shanghai, in a sense, belongs as much to, to architects who have been curious about it in Bombay as anybody else. Uh, and in China and Japan, there's a, there's a consciousness that Japan and China are important for themselves and for Europe and America. There is a bit of a surprise when you say that somebody in India has been studying your city for about 25 years. They don't believe it at first. But then, you know, then they do. And then there is an interest in, in, uh, in taking that conversation further. So Rupali and Prasad revisited buildings that were dear to them in Shanghai. One of them was uh, what we call the Slaughterhouse. It's, it is a... Um, 1920s uh, sort of strange Bauhaus creature transplanted to Shanghai, which is was the municipal slaughterhouse mm. uh, where animals were slaughtered. 
and um, there was a way in which the circulation of blood in this building was a very important design principle. So the entire building is constructed through these flowing, through these ramps of of curving, flowing concrete, which became a metaphor for Rupali and Prasad in their architectural designs mm -hmm. for us. And that conversation is, in fact, continued. We did this. We we invited them again to be exhibition architects for us in Barcelona in another show that we did. Mm -hmm. And in each of these instances, it's an understanding of space as a and its sensory properties, um, its sensate properties, it, its capacity to make you feel to take a. I mean, I think that when you enter a room, you it either makes you take a breath in or take a breath out, mm -hmm. and that inhalatory or exhalatory impulse are as basic as everything else that, that goes on. And that's how we work together. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, I'm interesting, interested in what you just said about Shanghai being a place that's for everyone, right? But the tension that comes with a city like Shanghai with the rapid urban development is that who is losing out on that conversation? And I think one very interesting thing that um, came about through um, our Biennale, why not ask again, was this idea of um, 51 personae mm. and these outreach conversations that could actually happen in the community with people yeah. who perhaps might be considered disenfranchised right. in this context of Shanghai. So I'd love if you could share a little sure. bit more about that programming as well. Well, that's a very interesting question because uh, very often curatorial interventions in cities are like the visits of spaceships. Yeah, You know, the, the biennial is something that comes from outer space, yeah. occupies a big building and then leaves, uh, often producing um, vectors and zones of resentment. Uh, sometimes which are waiting to voice themselves. There are enough people in cities that are always waiting to say, told you so, contemporary art is alien and horrible and no one should ever have anything to do with it. So, and and the these tendencies feed off each other, mm. right? The, the, the hauteur and the disdain of the curators for the city and the inverse snobbery of the city for the curator, right? we've always felt, and this was part of the Sarai experience, was mm -hmm. that you need to always engage in some kind of a conversation with key stakeholders, yeah. um, acknowledged as well as unacknowledged in an urban space. Um, this goes back to the time that when we did um, uh, Manifesta, the European Contemporary Art Biennial, where we were located, as you often are in Europe, in former industrial facilities. Um, in an aluminium factory, mm. surrounded by other factories in which there were factory workers who hated the idea that people would come now to look at contemporary art. The first thing that we did when we got there, we said, let's have a tea party with all the factory councils of the surrounding factories. And it was just an icebreaker, and we took advantage of the idea that we were stupid foreigners anyway, so you can always say, I don't know anything about your life, you have to tell me everything, mm. right? And then these middle-aged, working-class Italian men and women brought up on a diet of xenophobia had to actually mm. engage through this question of these, of these regular tea parties that we did with these people to be able to say that, okay, now we are neighbors and let's find a way of being in and out of the space. In Manifesto, one of the ways that we found was to have an entrance to the exhibition 
which was only for the people who were part of the town for which they never paid. And the point was, we said, you don't have to go and see the rest of the exhibition. This is just, there was a space that was opened. We produced a space called Tabula Raza, where groups within the town could then begin to do interesting things. Mm. So there's a long table and an empty room. And every week, something or the other would happen. Mm. If you go to industrial uh, contexts, people who work in factories often have very fascinating hobbies, and they meet for hobby groups. And one of the things we said we found was that there was a hobby group in Bolzano in Italy that basically met to only listen to shortwave radio broadcasts in languages that they did not understand. These were 50-something-year-old men and women tired after a day's work would just switch on the radio together. So we said, all right, we would invite you to produce a symphony on this table of shortwave radio broadcasts that you curate. Wow. And it was a beautiful thing because it had all these beautiful shortwave radios and they were listening to, and it created this hum. Of, or similarly, there was a mathematicians group. We said, why don't you write the thing called the Bolzano equation? There was tap dancers. So we said, why don't you do tap dancing on the table? Now, 51 personae in Shanghai was a flip of this. Right. Instead of bringing the town to the exhibition, mm -hmm. we said we will take the exhibition to the town and find ways of engaging with very different kinds of communities who are doing different things. And we had a wonderful collaborator in this, Chen Yun, the mm -hmm. great heroic um, you know, Chen Yun, who is a sort of public art programmer and, and, and editor in, in Shanghai. And she worked with a, with a community organization in the middle of one of the tightest communities threatened by redevelopment, Shanghai Town. And she curated a program of 51 episodes mm. which contained or tried to express the, the life and vivaciousness of a city like Shanghai, which included a football team entirely made up of former uh, thieves. Wow. They did... Like that was their thing. We were we we used to be thieves, and now we're football players. There was the um, ladies tango dancing group. There were, um, of course, people who m had all sorts of different collections. China is full of people with mad collections, mm. and they would produce little events and so on. Uh, there were there was a group of uh, gentlemen who were interested in haunted houses in Shanghai, and they did a haunted house tour. So there were all these sort of very different things that enabled the city to kind of whisper to itself, mm -hmm. not talk, but whisper to itself. Yeah. And that was what the 51 Personae did. And it's quite okay, in my view, for these processes to have autonomy from the main program of the exhibition. Mm. They don't have to have things that go on together. Sometimes yeah. it's great if they do, mm. but they're on their own planet. <laughs> Well, I think that was what was in my mind quite interesting because it was this um, this thing of this major biennale and we did have international artists coming from 40 different countries um, to be here and we did have those artists actually go out to the communities that, mm. that these events were going on. So there was this like overlappage in terms of the Biennale program, but then also having these very intimate encounters mm. with what mm. was really happening in the yeah. city as well. I mean, the, the, the crucial thing was devising a calendar mm. so that you could book your time, let's say, with the 
with the association of uh, haunted house explorers to be able to be with them because they were not always they were not going to be available all the time they had their they all all these people had things to do so they we we worked very hard on the yeah. calibration of a calendar and i mean to me that i mean that goes so much more beyond actually you know it's not just a showcase for me it's about advocating for a practice then mm. and for advocating for the importance of these practices and mm. also in terms of of them acknowledging their skills within a changing right. environment within, within a developing world as well. So I think mm. there's something special that emerges mm. there from those conversations. Um, so moving forward, we've heard about Shanghai, which is fantastic, thank you. Um, maybe let's move forward to your conversation that you spoke about earlier with Macwell. Um, and do you want to tell us a little bit about this show and mm. the context for that? And yeah. The show we produced in Macbow is called in the open or in stealth. Mm -hmm. And it again uh, grew out of a conversation with Ferran Barenblit, who is the current artistic director of MACBA in Barcelona, about thinking ab about what can a museum, such as the MACBA, which has got a big presence in Barcelona, begin, how can it begin addressing its own future? And we said that then let's think of, and this was naturally a development from Shanghai, Let's think about imminence and futurity. So what are the, what are the ways in which um, artists, for instance, are eavesdropping on the future in their practices? And that was our question. Uh, so we began being curious about, um, about what artists see as, as what is imminent. Mm. Uh, so to give you an example, uh, with uh, Rohini Devasher, uh, an artist who came out of the Sarai experience, she began to be very interested in the production of hybrid life forms because she said that, uh, you know, we, we all assume that evolution has ended, whereas in fact it hasn't. Uh, the processes of natural selection are continuing even today. So she said it's actually interesting to think about what will happen to plants with the presence of human beings, let's say, what mm. what accidents and runaway propositions of new life can emerge uh, again, not just now, but in the remote future. So she created a sort of fanciful, um, you know, structure for the for thinking about the future of organic life. We were looking at one of the artists that we decided to include in this exhibition was a robot. Okay. Uh, Tell was us about that. was a was a computer. It was an artificial intelligence engine that had actually created the f world's first computer-generated poem. Okay, wow. But it wasn't of now. This is a poem that was written in 1971, mm. right? So it was before people even began thinking about these things in before people thought of AI. They were thinking of right. robotics, but not of AI. Mm. So that poem was the artwork and, the, and that particular computer was the artist. We were keen to think about the materiality of consciousness itself. So one of the people we included as an artist, and since this was not a biennial exhibition, you could also think in terms of practices that are not necessarily only concurrent. Right. So we invited, um, and we were lucky enough to get drawings from the estate of um, Alberto Ramon y Cayal, who is, uh, you know, who is a pioneering late 19th century, early 20th century neurosurgeon and neuroscientist in Spain, who did the earliest and very precise drawings of the nervous system. 
uh, and which is why we know that there are things called synapses and gaps between our nerves through which messages circulate. If you look at those drawings, they would they are stunningly beautiful, right? So we were thinking that this is a man who's actually talked about and understood the material structure of consciousness. So in a sense, he's been able to gauge the fact that thinking is a matter of salts and and what happens in our nervous system and the electrical discharges and so on. And so these drawings became a part of it. Uh, we were looking at um, the work of an artist that we, that we really admire, John Gerard, who's from Ireland. And he produces um, virtual reality simulations, mm -hmm. which look totally unlike virtual reality. They look like they're unfolding in real time, uh, as if they're documentary footage. But in his, the, what he was doing was, for instance, he was looking at uh, one of the early animals in space, a frog that was sent up into outer space and its kind of balletic movements. So all these were intimations of futurities for us. Mm. And this exhibition also had a kind of science fiction slant going through it. Yeah. Again, working with many sources, mm. many itineraries of objects, um, stories mm. which we shared with artists. And the sharing of the stories became the groundwork for the responses that they would do. Yeah, fantastic. Um, heard a lot about curating, and I'm conscious that um, I want to ask you about other things as well. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested, Shuda, we spoke a little bit before we came on stage today about um, this idea of, of you as an individual and how you um, negotiate your practitioner as what might be called an activist. Mm -hmm. Correct me if you don't identify with that. Um, but as someone who is also operating in um, very prestigious events in the contemporary art world. And the reason why I'm asking that is because I, I do feel that in Australia there is a, a very um, strong history of activism that integrates its way into practice. And right. I think here in Brisbane, we're very lucky to see artists that are um, working in that vein. Mm. Um, I know you have a, quite a different approach to that, um, but I'm very interested in how you negotiate that as a practitioner and, and how that bleeds into each other, if you could speak to that. Sure. Not an easy question, but we'll try. Um, before I begin trying to tackle what that means, let me say that I hope whatever activism people are doing in Queensland will eventually stop the obscenity of the Carmichael Adani mine, which um, is not just destroying things in this country, but will also end up destroying a lot of things where I come from. Uh, it's a form of rapacious um, runaway capitalism based on absolute corruption, mm, which is destroying the substance of democracy and politics in your society as well as in ours. So it's my, it's not welcome to country, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> yes, anyway. Yes, I'm sure a lot of people agree <clears throat> with that. The reason I say that is because I think that these are moments where we all have to think very seriously about our place in the world. Mm. And that's what I'm interested in doing. It's not necessarily, I mean, and I make this distinction. I, as, a, as an individual, as a human being, am a citizen of a country and a citizen of the world. And 
the responsibilities of what citizenship or not even citizenship of just residence on earth means are equal to what it would mean if I were not an artist but a doctor. Right. Right? So my political concerns, commitments, engagements are not more special because I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. They would be equally applicable if I had another calling. So therefore, at the very beginning, I would like to say that being politically engaged does not make an artist special. It is also not a criterion by which we should evaluate the work and presence of an artist in the world mm. alone. It can be one of the criterion. Right. The reason I'm saying this is that given the intensity of my political engagements, which are not necessarily known to the artistic world, mm. and I try to keep it that way. Yeah, sorry. Unearthing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, 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 that's fine. Uh, because I take politics and political engagement and involvement quite seriously, and, and I'm entangled with lots of things in India, um, that produces in me an occasional uh, bit of slight impatience where with the rhetorical deployment of political themes in artistic work mm. for its own sake as as a as a gesture signaling the relevance of an artwork i think all artwork is relevant and all artwork at all times is political right right the people who make extremely formalist uh, statements are also making political work and whether they like it or not uh, the the person who's exhibiting difficult and fraught histories is the first thing you encounter in an artwork is also making formalist commitments, mm -hmm. whether they like it or not. So I see this as a question that has to be answered and understood in all forms. Having said that, as a seriously politically engaged person, I am always hyper-conscious of the efficacy of the deployment of political language in artistic mm -hmm. practice. So when I'm wearing my political hat <clears throat> and I'm looking at art, art, activist art, one of the questions I'm asking is, does it work? Mm. Does it do what is necessary? Because if as, as an activist, you have to achieve outcomes. Right. Does the presence of activist art in contemporary art museums or in institutions achieve the necessary or desired outcomes, or do they d achieve other outcomes? Mm. Because they always achieve outcomes. But how do you measure that? You can't measure it. But I'm saying that there is an element of the moral satisfaction that, that practitioners have when they say, look, I've done my bit. Right. My concern is that moral satisfaction should not be achieved so easily. Mm. If you are interested in political engagement, there is, of course, a world of political action that needs to be engaged with on a serious basis. You can't solve that problem by... Um, 
by a gesture. I mean, I'm not saying you can't make that gesture. Of course, people can make any gesture they want. Mm. But I don't think that um, that they should, I, th I think there should be a continuous asking of a question of the efficacy of gestures. Sometimes the gesture made in the contemporary art context is caught within a circuit of its own production right. where everybody concerned said, look, the gesture was made and that's all that was important. That may be important in certain reasons. There may be an importance where a gesture needs to be made and seen to be made for historic reasons, mm. right? So the the highlighting or bringing back to memory the questions of what was done with indigenous populations in Australia is a gesture that will need to be made forever and ever, perhaps in different ways, right? But you can't argue that the presence of uh, an indigenous artist in a contemporary Australian art institution is a token because it never is and it never will be, right? One can do these things of memory. And similarly, you can argue that the presence, I mean, we've just finished doing a, a big install on um, what happened to Indian soldiers in the battlefields of Europe and Mesopotamia in the First World War in the UK, in England. And it was basically looking at medical records. It was basically looking at uh, processes of forgetting. And it was looking at the relationship between a diagnosis of psychological disorder and the and what was seen as the excess of poetry in this soldier's speech. I'm not saying that we did that to address a historical wrong, but I'm saying that we did that in order for us to understand as artists mm. what living through conflict means. Mm. So when I'm when we do invoke political realities in our work, it's a measure of our attempt at understanding the world we live in. When I engage in political action, it indexes my effort to deal with life. Right. I don't confuse these two. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I, I think it's a very specific position yeah. to take. And that's why I asked it. And I know that it's um, perhaps a little point of tension for you, but I think it's very important. No, these yeah, it's a very important thing. Um, so thank you for sharing. Um, Rolling off that now, I guess I'm very interested. I mean, I kind of, I feel like it's funny because I'm listening to you and some of these conversations that you're having about collaboration, right, and, and, and interdisciplinary practice. Um, for me, I'm thinking about would a scientist have or appreciate the validity of that conversation? And I feel like you're taking the position of, of that from the position of someone in a political sphere. So it's interesting that you become, um, that you are, you know, a spike in your own wheel in a way. So just to challenge you a little bit, should I? Mm. Um, but I think that's, that's very interesting. Um, I wanna move now into your artistic practice, where it all began and where it's still going. And one thing that I thought, thought was very rewarding in working with you as part of the Shanghai Biennial was this idea of the studio space, right? And the fact that you guys were working on this massive exhibition while also maintaining a, an artistic practice. And we had works coming in and out of the studio. Mm. You were producing films at the same time that you were making exhibitions. So 
tell us about how how is your practice today and what what are you working on in terms of this position as an artist um the practice has to continue because that's the first of all it's the bread and butter and secondly it's the foundation of our thinking mm. the reason why we practice as artists is because we enjoy a process of thinking together and in rux we've always maintained that there can be no distinction in hierarchy between thinking and making that's why we do what we're doing uh, we do something completely different otherwise um so in a sense now to would i be somebody different if we were physicists in a laboratory the scientist question i think not you know i think that uh in in and that has something to do with what we're doing right now we're working mm. a lot on on questions of materiality and materials um we've just finished a, a work that looks at the histories of coal not here in australia <laughs> but in britain and india following the itineraries of george orwell and his exceptional book called road to wigan pier i know you live in a state where there's a lot of coal it's a book you must read because it's all about coal it's obsessing about coal. Did you know that the Australian Parliament um had a piece of coal in the I know, yeah. I I know that uh, your prime minister uh, what is interesting is that he dressed it up. He he coated it with lacquer because he didn't want the soot to get onto his hands. Love it. That's an artistic act. <laughs> Ar- activist artist act in the parliament. <clears throat> But um so when thinking about that the re- the reason why we we are working we did that work was to try and deepen our understanding of the relationship between energy politics and democracy mm. um to try and understand what a different calculus of energy what a different way of thinking about a grid would do to our understanding of the relationships of power that was one We are now going to start working on um uh we're very excited because we have been invited to the um CERN um particle physics laboratory in Switzerland and France you know the where the large hadron collider is mm. and I think these invitations come partly because it's now beginning to be known that we we're nerds about physics <laughs> and <coughs> good thing to be known for good thing yeah So um and and that's going to be again taking this question further of how do you think about um matter and its relationship to information and its relationship to energy and what can that tell us about ourselves mm. um I'm very excited in doing some research right now on the life of a of a very very eminent British um uh, crystallographer is what she would be called Dorothy Hodgkin she was the only british female scientist who ever got the nobel prize and she, her work is really interesting because it's at the intersections of physics biology and chemistry she produced the structure of the vitamin b12 molecule or was created a work of sculpture basically to tell the world this is what it looks like and we're interested in thinking through her legacy mm. um to to f- to ask questions about the relationships between bodily integrity material sciences and the world these are big political questions mm. as far as i'm concerned because they are the kind of things that we should be thinking about on an urgent and daily basis 
in order to understand how value is produced in the world, how bodies are sustained, what things can be done. And in my conversations with, um, with physicists and biologists and astronomers, I am delighted to understand how politically acute they are. They're amongst, I mean, some of them, of course, are like, you know, not interested in anything but their microscopes. But the most interesting scientists for me are the ones that are actually aware and deeply aware of the relationship of the work that they're doing, the questions they're asking, and the future of the planet. Mm -hmm. um, and the future of working bodies, the future of what it means to be male or female, the future of what it means to be a laboring body, let's say. So this gives you an awareness of the kind of things that we're working with at the moment. When I go back, we have to produce a short children's film, um, which is an overdue commission. Uh, we wanted to, we've been wanting for a long time to make a film uh, with the fairy tales that um, Karl Marx wrote for his, invented for his daughter. So while he was writing Das Kapital, he was also writing, or not writing, but telling a set of fairy tales about machines that make machines for his daughter, Eleanor. And we want to make a children's film about machines that make machines, Karl Marx and Eleanor. And that is a very attractive and fun project that we're looking forward to. Amazing. And where is that happening? Um, I mean, we'll do it in Delhi, but yeah, okay. it's not for anything. It's just oh, something okay. we've been... Wanting to do for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Um, before you were speaking about this idea of um, going back to, I mean, what is the essence of, of curatorial practice and what can happen in this interesting moments of nexus and, and mm. what is the possibility of this space? And you, you had this statement where you spoke about what what is the validity validity of art or what can art be in 5,000 years' time. I'm interested now with your 27 years of experience in working with rocks, in, in, can you speak to us about what would you like to see in 5,000 years' time? Of what? Of, of, of the world, just of the world. anything. What, what are some of the propositions that you hmm. are speaking to now that you would hope to see embodied in the future? I think... Uh, I think the reason why we make the work is to try and do a little bit of stargazing in the future. Because the way you think about the future actually changes the present enormously, right? Um, and, and I'm interested in artistic work as contributing to the way we reimagine worlds, if there is activism to be done, I think that's a very good place to be an activist, mm. to, to, to constantly renew and change the horizons of what we can imagine to be true and possible. Um, our, our horizons for what is possible um, are very constrained at the moment by the barrage of things that come to us from current events. And, um, you know, so uh, sitting in Queensland, you are you're bombarded with the idea that uh, thinking about alternatives to coal is impractical and, and mm. so on. Yeah. This is just a certain volume and intensity of information. Uh, it could be equally important at that time to think of different ways of imagining energy. 
So we're interested. One of the things that I think, if you ask me, if, would there be a lasting legacy that we would like to leave? Mm. Uh, I would say that if we can create a few hesitations and doubts in the minds of enough people who encounter our work about the way they think they take for granted the questions of energy, the production of value, and the relationship between bodies and machines. Mm. That would satisfy me. So that these questions are not taken for granted. We, we are in the next 10, 15, 20 years, we're going to live in a world where artificial intelligence is going to play a massive role in production, in manufacture. It will either, I mean, this can be seen as either a dystopian possibility where mm. there are thousands upon thousands of young people of working age who will then have empty minds and nothing to do and be, be no, income. no income. Or it can also be seen as the foundation and the possibility of creating a different relationship between time and labor. Mm. What way in which we, which way in which we go has something to do with whether or not we begin to have conversations with artificial intelligence, mm. sympathy for the robot who is going to replace us and for ourselves. So working with the imagination has a political urgency right now that it hasn't had in a long time. Mm. That's where I think we can do some things. Yeah, amazing. Fantastic. Well, I might leave it there because that's very inspirational. Um, thank you so much, Shudder, for our conversation. Thank I, you. 